Hello, I'm Zev Newirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Uh, Folks, on Friday, March 27th, 2020, I launched a limited podcast series addressing how the COVID-19 pandemic is reframing healthcare in the U.S. In this limited series, I am reaching out to interview future-facing, courageous healthcare leaders, entrepreneurs, and practitioners, asking two questions. First, how is the COVID-19 pandemic immediately changing the way we're delivering healthcare? And two, how will COVID-19 reframe American healthcare for years to come? In this interview, we'll be speaking with Dr. Shreya Kangovi about community health workers. And to my mind, uh, community health workers are one of the most untapped opportunities we have to reframe healthcare and really create transformative change. They are, in this COVID-19 era, more important now than ever before. Community health workers address some of the real root cause issues, such as the overwhelming impact that social determinants of health have on healthcare outcomes, utilization costs, and the experience of care. In fact, I was just reading that over 80% of healthcare spending is driven by personal, social, and environmental factors, not clinical factors. And that was from some research I was reviewing. We know that over 75% of costs of healthcare in this country are due to chronic disease. And again, we're doing a rather mediocre job of controlling that and managing that in our current approach. Dr. Kangovi and her colleagues have pioneered a rigorous evidence-based approach to building, deploying, and measuring the impact of a community health worker program. Uh, She is the founder and executive director of the Penn Center for Community Health Workers, a national center of excellence dedicated to advancing health in low-income populations through community health worker programs. Uh, She and her colleagues have literally spent a decade creating and refining a world-class program called Impact, and we're going to hear more about that. Um, What is amazing, too, is she's now offering this program to other institutions to deploy and spread widely. I have so much respect for the way she's approached this and the work that she and her colleagues have been doing. Really fantastic work. I mean, community health workers have been around for a long time but she and her program have really elevated that work to a different level. So without further ado, let's drop into the interview. Uh, Dr. Shreya Kangovi is actually on the line. Shreya, how are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you, Zev. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. You know, as I mentioned before we got on, uh, I've been spending so much time looking at your articles and studying them and uh, talking to folks about them, uh, hoping that we could uh, utilize some of your services. But so excited to speak to you today in the context. We spoke, by the way, I don't know if you recall, it was back, I think, in June or July of 2018. It was number 42, right? Episode 42 of Creating New Healthcare. So Episode 42. That's right. You remember that? (laughs) Yeah. For folks who are listening, I've just reviewed it a couple of times in preparation for speaking with Dr. Kungovi today, and it was really an outstanding interview, really explained so much, and uh, I would recommend that folks go back and listen to that as well. But I want to start where you want to start, which is the problem or problems we are dealing with in healthcare today. So I know you have some thoughts on this. Why don't you just kick that off? Surely. Yeah, I I like starting with problem definition. Um, And I think the problem is that Americans are dying at startling rates. And they're not only dying of COVID-19, but all of its consequences. 
So it, it's actually not just one problem we need to solve, but several. The first problem, of course, is the unchecked infection. You know, COVID-19 is still surging. Uh, we're not in a second wave. We're still in the first wave. It hasn't really slowed down in the United States. And it will continue that way um, without adequate testing and contact tracing. However, the way that we are you know, envisioning and talking about contact tracing in the national conversation uh, is probably not going to work. And I'll talk more about why I think that in, in a moment. So, but problem number one is infection. Problem number two is uh, that people are still dying of chronic conditions like diabetes, asthma, or depression. And in fact, they're dying even more because they've uh, lost their health insurance or they can't get appointments because those have been suspended. So that's problem two. Problem three is that people are dying of hardship. 30 million Americans have filed for unemployment. This is Great Depression level. Um, this is an economic black hole, and people are struggling to pay for food, housing, and medication, also, you know, health supporting resources. Problem four is that people have, you know, just tremendous stress and social isolation right now. Um, we know that smoking, drinking, you know, other stress-related habits are on the rise. Gun sales are at an all-time high, and many experts worry that suicides will track in tow. And then the final kind of overarching problem in all of this is just a heightening of um, healthcare disparities uh, that have always been there, but COVID is a funhouse mirror that is just amplifying them. And we just know that all Americans are being affected by this pandemic, but those who were disadvantaged prior are being really devastated. You mentioned the, the social disparities of care, which were there, but I think interested to hear more about that from you. But it seems to me that that's not only been exposed, but exacerbated. Can I add another? Go, please. You know, this is a dark place to start this conversation, which hopefully will have a, an arc of hopefulness to it. But I, I, I want to lay out very clearly what we're dealing with here. So all of the problems that we just talked about, they're going to create this tsunami of illness. And that tsunami is striking already, and it's, it's actually hitting precisely when the U.S. healthcare system is at its weakest, because as revenues drop, we know that health systems are laying off you know, workers by the thousands. So there's problems on the supply side and the demand side. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, and that's a really, really good point. The issue, though, that I've been thinking about is that you know, so much of, uh, as you talked about, the weakness in our healthcare system, it seems to me that the COVID pandemic is exposing some vulnerabilities and weaknesses and problems that were already there. And I'm curious as to how you hear that statement, if you agree, disagree, and what you think about it, and in terms of what problems, if any, have been exposed by this situation. No, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, that's why I love how you've titled this podcast. You know, I, I do think COVID is a catalyst. It's a funhouse mirror. It's an amplifier on the problem side. And we need to um, amplify solutions, actually. We need to kind of fight COVID with its own medicine. We need to be thinking about, well, what solutions exist to not only tackle, you know, one narrow piece of this problem, but all of the different aspects of the problem. And, and I think that's where community health workers come in. Say more about that. If you want to speak to primary care in general and then hone down on community health workers, I'd love to hear that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Zev. We have this problem in the United States where we're very myopically focused on the end game, you know, um, on the kind of disease end game. So we think about, you know, okay, we need to ramp up ventilators and intensive care units and critical care doctors. And, and that's all important, but um, it's, it's really kind of the, the end of the line. You know, even when we 
move upstream and think about kind of the public health sphere, it's still quite narrow. It's, you know, it's about contact tracers um, and that's great and needed, but it's, it's still very sort of epidemiologic and, and quite narrow. And I think what we really are learning from uh, COVID-19 is that we need to start at the root cause of the problems. And um, the root cause of many of the problems that I just laid out aren't the disease, it's the real life situations and circumstances, particularly of those who face some sort of social or economic disadvantage. So that's where I think a different type of workforce comes in, and you know, that, that's community health workers. Who are community health workers? Community health workers are trusted individuals who can be hired and trained by healthcare organizations, by public health organizations, by community organizations, to essentially provide individuals with social support, you know, with access to health and social services, they can promote healthy behavior, and they can do things like COVID prevention messaging or contact tracing, but they can do that in the context of providing holistic and tailored support across all of these domains. So it's broader, it's upstream, and it comes from within um, the community. I think the fundamental inflection point is this, which is hard to, I think it's just very, very hard to comprehend because we've all been trained in a scientific interventional tertiary approach. I mean, that's, we got our training, you know, I trained, did medical school at UPenn and you're trained in that, the big house. And I think for me, the big inflection is, and this realization, despite the fact that the literature says this over and over and over again, and the research proves it over and over again, it's so hard to wrap your head around the fact that most of the health outcomes are influenced not by medical factors. You know, most of the utilization, most of the cost, it's so simple and so hard. The idea that relationship and trust and community and having meaning in one's life, having safety in one's neighborhood, having employment, education, food security, those basic human social needs are in fact the cause for so much of the utilization and the spend in healthcare. And to your point, we've gone way downstream and become so good and so expert at so much of that downstream care, but it is after the fact, it is, again, it's not proactive, it's not preventive, it's not upstream, and it's incredibly costly. And yet that's where we're chasing. And so I just wanted to call that out because it's, I think you understand it in spades, but just kind of curious how that sounded to you. Yeah. No, I mean, that's spot on. Look, I mean, we just laid out the problems that we're trying to solve and there already exists a bona fide workforce, community health workers who address all of those problems. There's a huge body of scientific evidence that supports, you know, the effectiveness of community health workers to address these underlying socioeconomic issues, to improve chronic disease control, to promote healthy behavior, to improve access to care, to reduce costly hospitalizations. You know, my colleagues and I um, have done three separate randomized control trials of the impact model, you know, which is a standardized model for hiring, training, and deploying community health workers. And, you know, these have demonstrated that community health workers can improve health, improve quality of care, while saving Medicaid, you know, $4,200 per beneficiary. So I, I just, I'm scratching my head, Zev, I, I really have been over the past six weeks about why haven't community health workers uh, been front and center of the conversation. You know, the question isn't anymore, 
why should we think about community health workers? We really need to ask ourselves, why aren't we talking about community health workers? And I, I think part of the problem may be the training that you know you referred to, but maybe I'm being too cynical right now, but I think it's a bigger problem than that. I think we have structural racism on our hands. I think we you know have a, a system in which we have purveyors of health and health care. You know, I could be talking about you know, healthcare institutions like doctor's offices or hospitals or, you know, public health offices. But the people who purvey health and healthcare look very different from the people who are suffering um, from poor health. And the people who are making decisions about healthcare, the people who are designing solutions for health and uh, healthcare and public health are not the same people who are in these communities who are kind of suffering. I'll just give you an example um, that's kind of grounded in the COVID-19 conversation. You know, we've been hearing, right, a lot about contact tracers. So what is a kind of mental model? You know, because when you think about, okay, well, we need to ramp up a workforce to address COVID-19, to contain COVID-19, to help with recovery. What are you picturing in your head just based on the national conversation? That's a really interesting question. I may be off here, but I've been picturing professionals that are hired or actually I've been wondering if, you know, should we be hiring folks from the community to, and train them to go back to the community and identify folks who may have COVID to test and then, you know, isolate and then do the, uh, the contact tracing with uh, folks that they've been in contact with to minimize the chance of spread. But that's the picture I'm carrying. So you're unique, and that's probably because you're Zeb New Earth. <laughs> I think that most Americans, when they think, okay, who's, who's in the ground game? Who's the workforce that we need to battle COVID-19 and to get us out of this hole? They're picturing a volunteer grad student, you know, like a public health student or a furloughed nurse, you know, or an AmeriCorps volunteer. Am I right? Or is that? Okay. Totally. You're spot on. And if this was a multiple choice, my first answer would have been, I, I mean, I hate to say this. and I, I, You got it right, but you got it wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my first choice, exactly. It would have been a college student in my mind, right? Exactly what you said. And So let's play that out. Okay. So let's, let's actually play this out from the point of view of a real person on the ground. So, so just imagine in your mind, uh, George, who is, let's say, a 43-year-old restaurant worker from Southwest Philadelphia. Uh, let's say he's the breadwinner for his family, uh, which includes kind of a, also includes a special needs child. Okay, so you got your mental picture of George. So now imagine the phone ringing and a 22-year-old volunteer grad student tracer from a totally different sociocultural background is calling George. And uh, she is calling to explain to George that he's been exposed to COVID-19. So how does this actually play out? So first of all, George isn't going to pick up the phone right now because there are a lot of scamming um, calls. There's a lot of bill collection calls coming in in these communities. So the chances are he doesn't even pick up the phone. If he does pick up the phone, uh, we have our friendly tracer saying, George, you've been exposed to COVID. And he is like, duh. <laughs> I take the bus every day and then two trains to go work in a crowded galley of a kitchen. Like I knew that this was going to happen. I mean, I knew I've been exposed, like people are coughing and sneezing on me, nobody has masks. So that part is, you know, not really um, exciting. Then the tracer goes on, right, to educate George about why he needs to self-isolate. And, and frankly, you know, ways that I think are just really pedantic in my mind. And then George is thinking, you know, okay, you 
pompous ass. <laughs> like, I know that would be lovely for me to be able to self-isolate, but are you going to explain this to my boss? Um, are you going to come put food on my table? Are you going to take my child to the, her doctor's appointments? Um, so that's where that conversation is going to go. And then the tracer is going to say, no, but if you break quarantine, um, I will report you to the health department and you could be fined $1,000. So this is the system that we're kind of putting out there, you know, if we're not careful. It's taken a long time to kind of build up inequities in healthcare, and I've been shocked at how quickly we've been able to do it in public health. <laughs> and I'm a public health scientist, you know, I, I, I believe in public health. This is part of this larger structural racism, is that, that whole point that the, the people, the purveyors of healthcare are not coming from the same background as the vast majority of folks who are the consumers of healthcare and in need of health and healthcare. And I also would add to that, that the, you know, the payment and compensation, which is the single largest driver by far uh, for what we do in healthcare delivery is not geared towards communities of color. It's not geared toward health for that matter. Um, it's geared towards procedures and transactions. And, you know, and that's not to blame anyone uh, in healthcare. That is just, that's the way the game's been set up and that's the way it's being played. And well, just, just to interrupt on that, I mean, I, I think that's the beauty of the word or, or the phrase structural racism. Um, there is there is blame in that, you know, there is a there, there is racism, but it's not uh, blame placed on any individual. It is sort of baked in to how the game is set up. And so in, in health and in healthcare, uh, again, there is structural inequity, there's structural injustice, there's structural racism. Um, and it, it just means that the people who are in charge, who get paid, are different than the people who pay and who are kind of end users, especially the ones who are suffering the poorest health. Let's get to the kind of hopeful part of this conversation before we have our listeners, you know, um, jump off a ledge. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly where I want to go. A, I want to go back to the to a different picture than the one we painted about the contact traces before and, and how community health workers can be part of that. And two, I'd love for you to, it seems to me, there's an answer to the structural racism. There's a solution to it. And that's what you're speaking to. So if you could take us to that new and better picture, creating a new healthcare. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's do it uh, first on the individual level, and then we'll kind of zoom out from there. So let's go back to George and I'm going to tell you, let's bring it really kind of down to what is happening in Philadelphia, actually, fortunately. So my team and I, as you know, run a National Center of Excellence that's focused on improving public health through effective community health worker programs. Um, we've developed the standardized model um, called IMPACT, and we are, you know, we have it scaled up in the Philadelphia and actually the tri-state region where we have a direct care program. And then we also support about 50 organizations now um, across 20 states who also are using this model. So I'm gonna bring you into the story and let's talk about George, but let's actually talk about the way that we have been approaching individuals like George. So what we've been doing in Philadelphia is that we, our community health workers, uh, send out batched text messages in advance of their outreach calls so that somebody like George can get a text saying, you know, hi, my name is G, I am, checking in on you because of all of the stuff that's going on with COVID. I'm calling from your local doctor's office. Um, you know, I can help with X, Y, and Z. Would you be interested in that? So then George has a heads up and is like, yes, of course I would be interested. You know, we have a very high uptake rate actually for these text outreaches. Um, so then he's able to get G actually on the phone and G, our community health worker, 
says, hey, you know, how are you, George? I'm, I'm just calling to check up on you with all the stuff that's going on with COVID. Are you okay? And George says, you know, yeah, you know, it's been tough and X, Y, Z is going on. And she says, yeah, let's talk about that. You know, let's take a step back and let me get to know you as a person. Um, and then we can talk about how I can best help you. Tell me about yourself. And she actually takes the time to kind of understand his life story. They talk about, you know, where were you born? What was it like growing up? You know, what are some of the things that you're proud of? And what's life like right now? What are, you know, some of your needs? What are some of the things that are going well? You know, do you have COVID? You know, does your family have it? Have you lost anybody? Are you having trouble making ends meet? All of those kinds of things. They have a conversation. Does that part make sense so far? Absolutely. And then, you know, G asks George this really magical question, which is, George, what do you think would improve your life and your health right now? I'm going to say that one more time because this is the core question. George, what do you think would improve your life and your health right now? It is really hard for healthcare professionals to get that question out of their mouths. Um, we are always telling people what to do. And for some reason, community health workers really naturally say this type of question. And it's also part of the impact script and the impact model. And I remember when we spoke, you know, literally almost two years ago, you, you shared that this particular question was the key core question to your program. And I remember I had to ask you to repeat it because it's such a foreign question in healthcare, right? It is. It's so weird. It is. Yeah. So, you know, when, when G asked George that question, he can say, you know, what I really need, because, you know, I think I've been exposed to COVID, is I need someone to call my boss and, and explain what quarantine means and advocate so that he doesn't fire me because of it. Um, I'd really love for somebody to be able to drop off some food um, because I'm having trouble making ends meet right now. And could you help me find a pediatrician who could do telephone visits with my child? Um, because we don't have fancy telehealth equipment. We don't have internet at home. But if I could at least get somebody on the phone, maybe I wouldn't have to leave the house to take her to the doctor. That's what I need. And G says, sure, I can really help you with those things. And in fact, here's my cell phone number. I'm going to stay in touch with you over the coming weeks. And let's work on each of these issues that you've identified. And let's kind of bang it out and try to get things done. And then she does that. And at the end of the conversation, uh, many community health workers will be able to eat, do contact tracing also. Um, you know, so community health workers can support contact tracing by accepting referrals from tracers, or they can do it themselves. And if they do it themselves, it basically, it comes at the end of a more holistic conversation, like what I just laid out. Um, and, and G will say, you know, this was great. We'll be in touch. Um, let me ask you one more thing. I'm working with our local health department and we're trying to, you know, offer support to individuals like you who may have been exposed to COVID or may have COVID. Um, because you've been exposed or because you have COVID, let me ask you, are you comfortable sharing with me, you know, where you've been and the people you've been in contact with over the past couple of weeks? Because if you give me a list of those names and phone numbers, I'll reach out to them. I won't let them know, you know, uh, I won't break your confidentiality, but I can support them the same way that I supported you. And then they do the tracing. Right now, we have a tail wagging the dog situation, which is, you know, we're talking about surveillance and epidemiologic tracing in a very non-humanistic way. We need to do those things, but they need to be in their appropriate place in a conversation and in a workforce strategy. Yeah. 
makes so much sense. And, you know, again, the two pictures you painted, the former one, which was, you know, sort of this, you know, academic intellectual approach to how that might work versus the one that you just painted was so different. Let me ask you again, just repeat the core question. George, what do you think you need in order to improve your life and your health? What a great question. So simple and so powerful. Now, in your program in the past, uh, prior to COVID-19, the, the pandemic, you, the community health workers, as I understand it, would, first of all, they're, they're hired from uh, communities, local communities, which makes all the difference. And uh, you hire for people who have that sort of personality and passion around listening to people and connecting with people and helping people. They're there in person, face-to-face often, whether it's taking people to do exercise or do something else, uh, fill out a form or, or uh, you know, shopping or whatnot. How is it different now? Uh, obviously, there's less or no face-to-face. And how frequently would a community health worker connect with and how are they connecting? How is that working right now? Yeah, I think there's two important parts to your question and I'll take them kind of in reverse order. One is like, what does the workflow look like now for community health workers? And then the second is, you know, what's the infrastructure uh, that backs this up? You know, how do you hire, train, and deploy these individuals um, to, so that they can do their best work? So uh, what it looks like now is actually, it's, in many ways, it's similar to what it used to look like. It's just telephonic for the most part. And it, it's interesting because so much, you know, pre-COVID of, of what community health workers did was um, be out in, you know, homes and in communities and just, you know, connecting face-to-face with people. Um, these are individuals who um, are hired because of their warmth and their empathy and their interpersonal skills. So, you know, we were wondering, you know, is this going to work through the telephone? But um, it really does, actually, because they are so warm, you know, and they are so uh, genuine. And, you know, the way that they um, talk about doing this is that, you know, they're, they're calling uh, their patients just the same as they would call to check up on an aunt or a cousin. And the warmth comes through um, actually over the phone and the support, you know, um, uh, one of our community health workers talks about how the support has changed. You know, she says kind of in the past, if somebody was trying to kind of lose weight, they would actually go work out together at the YMCA. But now what they do is they do a virtual, you know, they kind of do FaceTime and do exercise together virtually, you know, if the person has a smartphone and can do that kind of thing, or they just do it over the telephone. In the past, they would have gone with um, the patient to an important doctor's appointment, but now they do a three-way phone call and they're on the line with them um, at that doctor's appointment. So what we did at at our center was kind of the early weeks of COVID, um, late February, early March, we kind of immediately secured and stabilized our workforce because I, I do think it's in, it's critical that community health workers not be, you know, out there door to door canvassing without appropriate PPE. You know, this is uh, community health workers don't always have, you know, the greatest amount of political voice themselves. And I think we, you know, as employers and allies of community health workers um, are responsible for keeping them safe. So we brought our community health workers home and made sure that they were equipped to, you know, operate virtually. And we co-designed with our team of uh, 60 folks, most of whom are community health workers, what should impact look like in this kind of virtual uh, COVID reality. And we kind of refined our playbooks, our manuals. Um, We actually shared these with our organization uh, uh, across 20 different states. And, 
you know, we were able to really quickly kind of pivot um, to providing this type of virtual support, and it's been working very well. Is the communication done literally by phone or using a visual, or how is that happening? The first thing is a text outreach, again, just to, you know, to, to, to those who have a mobile phone to alert them that this call is coming. It's legitimate. You know, it's from either a doctor's office or public health department, whatever, you know, um, trusted organization. Then it's a telephone call. And then in the context of that telephone call, um, you know, one of the things they do is ask if the person has internet access, text messaging capability, FaceTime capability, and would they be comfortable doing that or want to do that? And then they get consent um, for those modalities because they're not as secure as telephonic communication. Uh, And then once they have that consent, they can do whatever, you know, again, whatever the patient wants to do. So if it's um, some sort of a video chat, then great. You know, we have uh, community health workers organizing virtual dance parties or, you know, virtual support groups. If it's uh, telephonic, that's fine. You know, again, just for those who are not as familiar with your program, Obviously, in pre-COVID, it wasn't about contact tracing or about the infection. It really was providing people with other support. So could you describe some of the supports and how frequently uh, the community health worker would connect with uh, a client and and for how long a period of time? It's interesting because the program hasn't changed very much um, in response to COVID. The story that I laid out, you know, with G and George is very similar to the story, you know, that we've been telling all along and the work that community health workers do all along. You know, the the flow of the impact model is that community health workers, um, you know, meet or call their patients. They get to know them as people. You know, they they learn their life story. Um, They understand their current strengths and challenges and goals Um, And they ask that person, you know, what do you need in order to improve your life and your health? They make tailored action plans um, with the patient, and then they do the work. And what that work looks like, um, it's tailored. Like I said, Um, it could be, you know, for a woman who is stuck at home with, you know, an abusive partner, it could be helping connect her to um, a domestic violence hotline or continuing to provide just informal emotional support. Um, to help her get through it or, or create a safety plan for her to find a different place to live. For someone who is, you know, um, struggling to manage their diabetes and has lost their employer-based insurance, it could mean, you know, calling um, over to a local uh, hospital and seeing if they have extra glucometers and dropping one off on the porch. It could mean, you know, helping to do virtual exercise sections. For someone who is struggling to, you know, get food or housing, community health workers might do food drop-offs. Um, and, you know, sometimes they're working with local food organizations or food pantries. Other times, you know, because the food pantries may have run out of food, um, they're just being scrappy and they're calling a local neighborhood market and saying, listen, you know, Mrs. Rodriguez lives on the block. Like she's, you know, going through a really tough time. Do you think you could spare, you know, X, Y, Z? Um, resources and and food and and then just making those kinds of connections. Um, For those of us who are homeless, it could be, you know, calling around to local hotels and and helping them figure out where, you know, they might spend the night. So this is the kind of work that community health workers do. Um, It's so broad and it's so multifaceted and super uh, tailored. Uh, But if you have the right infrastructure to back it up, they can really accomplish that. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. And Again, it's such a, uh, in some sense, a, a simple and elegant approach, but it does address 
the the structural racism you were talking about before, it, it really is very, very customized, as you say, tailored care, uh, and even to the level of what type of communication and how do you want to communicate? Yeah, and I think the ways in which it addresses the structural uh, racism or structural inequity um, are probably three things. Number one, you are hiring people from within these disadvantaged communities, people who share you know, marginalized status with the patients that they serve. So you're not hiring sort of exogenous, you know, tracers or, you know, clinicians like you or I, these are people, you know, you're, you're giving them jobs and, and meaningful careers. The second thing is, you know, um, you're not just hiring these people into a service industry where, you know, uh, they're following, you know, just the kind of clinical marching orders. They get to set the agenda with the patients they serve. So I think that's another critical piece. And then the third thing is that, you know, community health workers uh, don't just work at an individual level. In the impact model, they sort of aggregate all of the data from their individual work, and they we often use that to advocate at the collective level. So we can go to, you know, the city of Philadelphia and say, we're getting a lot of individuals in this community who are struggling with housing right now. We need to figure out an option for them. And so we can actually, you know, use that to, to, to advocate at broader levels. Do community health workers, so they, they start in this position, do some of them go on to other roles in healthcare? Yeah. So when people think about the career trajectory for community health workers, they often do think the way that you just described, which is, oh, great, community health workers, that's, an, that's a great entry-level job. Could, could they graduate to a different type of healthcare job? And so we actually just did a study that'll come out soon, um, and we interviewed community health workers and asked them what they want to do. <laughs> you know, there's a theme to like our work, which is just ask the person uh, what they want and do that thing. And when you ask community health workers, you know, what kind of job gives them joy and satisfaction, they describe being a community health worker. So we've developed a career path in our center that promotes community health workers within that job. You know, you don't have to you know, promote a beat cop to a desk job. Like, I don't think community health workers want to be nurses or pharmacists or surgical techs. They want to be community health workers, but they, of course, want to make more money and grow in their careers. So we've enabled them to do that. And you're absolutely right. If I was a community health worker, I, the idea of actually going and being a, you know, a med tech or something else, not that there's anything wrong with that, but if I was that type of person that was doing that work, I'm not sure I would want to you know, get out of it. It's just different. Yeah. yeah. If you've hired the right people, exactly. you know, then they like the job that you've hired them for. I want to make sure that, that we talk about what we need to do to actually in the United States, like scale up this um, community health workforce um, because we're not there yet. I was wondering the same question. What I was wondering, A, why it isn't more prevalent and more widespread. And secondly, how can we do that? We don't have community health workers uh, because we don't pay them. <laughs> in the United States, um, there's just a patchwork um, approach that's mostly grant funded. There's some you know, limited Medicaid um, funding through uh, demonstration projects or waivers. You know, sometimes an insurance company will recognize the inherent value of the workforce and start a pilot program, but this is not going to get us where we need to go. We have 56,000 community health workers in the United States compared to you know, what, 3 million registered nurses. Um, that's not um, sufficient. So what we have been um, really kind of advocating with a, a kind of good head of steam behind us is sustainable financing for community health workers. Um, we are leading a growing coalition, actually, that includes the American Public Health Association, the National Association of Community Health Workers, 
NAACP, IHI, SIGM, um, the American Diabetes Association. These are, you know, high-powered organizations. And all of us collectively are calling on Congress and on CMS to authorize sustainable funding for community health workers. Um, specifically, we ask uh, for Congress to authorize uh, funding, you know, as part of the larger contact tracing stimulus funding packages that they are contemplating. Um, we recommend that a portion of that money go specifically to community health workers, um, you know, especially in disadvantaged communities, as I think we've established over this conversation, you can't just do sort of a light touch surge contact tracing approach. You really need kind of the holistic community health workers. So uh, we think that, you know, the stimulus dollars for contact tracing should be part of a more comprehensive workforce strategy. So that's ask one. But the other piece of this is that, you know, short-term funding is not going to, also not going to get us where we need to go because we have a long-term problem. Um, you know, we certainly need emergency funding uh, to ramp uh, things up quickly, but this is not a pop shop. Um, you know, it can't be a pop shop problem because the problems that we laid out, you know, first of all, COVID itself is a longer term infection, you know, untreated chronic disease, the financial strain, the stress and social isolation, these problems are not going to go away. And they've always been there, actually. And so we need longer term um, healthcare infrastructure, we need a longer term financing strategy. So uh, the second ask is for Congress and CMS to create an optional uh, Medicaid benefit uh, to actually pay community health workers for the range of services that they are already providing. And we believe that, you know, this is really kind of critical um, to scaling up the workforce. Um, there's also some really exciting efforts that we are a part of, along with NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, um, on creating national standards for how do you hire, um, train, uh, deploy, supervise um, this workforce so that there are you know, guardrails for this kind of federal funding. And I think that will be critical um, because you, know, you want to make sure that you're scaling up community health workers, but as with everything in healthcare, um, it's about value, not just volume. And so these kinds of national standards for the workforce, I think will get us to high quality. Let me just ask a question about the payment model. So long-term payment, would it come through CPT type coding that would be paid for, or, you know, I'm thinking if we, if we start to move towards capitated payment of any sort, you know, whether it's Medicaid sort of managed care or Medicare type advantage products, uh, this would really point to, I mean, it would make sense then to hire community health workers and to, you know, pay them and, and support them because you're going to get the return on that investment. So how do you see that working into that payment ecosystem? How is the payment? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the reality is that states have a tremendous amount of flexibility in how they structure their Medicaid dollars, and that will, you know, there's going to be variability to that. But I do think that the ideal way, you know, um, that community health workers ought to be financed is through capitated arrangements. Um, I, I, I shudder at the thought of narrow CPT codes, you know, um, and community health workers reducing the magic that they do, which really lies in their ability to be holistic, to be flexible, to create these kind of tailored action plans and do um, magical things, you know, like take people bowling or organize a virtual dance party. There's no CPT code for that. And like, if we start to create these nonsensical, you know, lists, um, we're going to lose this beauty of this amazing workforce. So I think that this really should be paid through capitated arrangements. 
Thank you for saying that. I completely agree. You can't put a CPT code on caring. It will come in so many different ways and shapes and forms. It's, it's not a transactional activity that is easily defined and shouldn't be paid for in that way. It's just, it doesn't make sense. And so I think that the only way to do this uh, reasonably is through some sort of capitated payment where, you, again, you can customize tailored care to exactly what is needed and not what is proscribed by some sort of CPT code. That's right. If I could sort of close this really amazing conversation with like, what is the vision here? You know, how does this all tie together? What if in healthcare, we just, we knew what we were solving for, you know, we didn't have 80 billion different metrics. We just had four, you know, the quadruple aim. We want people to be healthy and, you know, live their fullest life. We want them to be satisfied with the experience of healthcare. Um, We want to make sure that we're keeping money in their pockets and in taxpayers' pockets. And we want a workforce that's healthy and satisfied. That's what we care about. And those are the only outcomes that we care about. And what if payment was simpler? You know, what what if you just got paid, uh, you know, a, a global dollar amount based on those outcomes? And what if the delivery of care was completely out of the box. You know, we know that COVID has chased healthcare out of clinics and out of hospitals. What if it stayed that way? And, and what if that wasn't just about technology and telehealth, but also the workforce? What if community health workers met individuals at their local YMCA or at their local retail store or at the, you know, market and they got to know them, uh, you know, as people and had conversations about how are you? How's life going? You know, who are you? What are you proud of? What do you need in order to improve your health and your life right now? And let me help you with that. And, and what if they stayed in touch with them and worked out with them and battled eviction notices and dropped off food on their porches and you know went to their kids' graduations and got them to good preventive primary care? And what if they were paid a single dollar amount for the whole entirety of that relationship and were able to use their judgment, you know, um, in, in how they kind of supported individuals. And what if this community health worker workforce was made up of the same people, you know, the same kinds of people who actually know what it's like to suffer from poor health or social injustice? And what if they were following evidence-based practices for, you know, how to build trust and how to provide social and behavioral support? And, you know, what if they had great supervision, you know, that actually was supportive and they had manageable caseloads and they worked with primary care practices that, you know, um, don't look like what they look like now. You know, maybe there are, you know, eight community health workers to every primary care clinician because, you know, as you mentioned at the top of the hour, 80% of the health equation has nothing to do with what you or I do, Zev, you know, when we're seeing patients in clinic. It has everything to do with what, you know, community health workers like G do. Um, out there on the streets. I'm going to listen to you say that over and over again on this podcast uh, after it's posted. It's what a brilliant, beautiful picture of what healthcare could and should look like. So hopeful. I want to sincerely thank you for your leadership, your professionalism, your vision, your courage, uh, your persistence, because you've been at this for so long, you and your colleagues, uh, such a critically important contribution. You know, if there's anything I can do at any point to help you, you know, please let me know. Thank you. Yeah, no, for sure. It's just such a pleasure speaking with you. I have so much respect for you. 
folks, these are unprecedented times. Again, I hope you find information, guidance, and inspiration in listening to experts like Dr. Shreya Kangovi, you know, entrepreneurs who are really sharing how they're adapting to this pandemic in real time and how they're thinking about and planning for the future. And again, I couldn't imagine anything more hopeful than what you just heard. As I do each and every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. And of course, a special shout out to all the community health workers out there. I am thinking about you and I'm sending my love and respect and admiration to all of you out there. In these times, especially I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society at large and the future of our society. My friends and colleagues, please take care of yourselves and please share this podcast series with others. It's so important. This is Zev Neuwirth. You've been listening to a limited series on how COVID-19 is reframing healthcare in America, part of the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. Until next time, be safe and be well.